Proverbs 31, and we're going to glean through quite a lot of it to arrive at one particular verse. But prior to doing so, I'd like to share with you a little letter that I had not received, but I saw that someone not locally had posted on Facebook. It was one of those kind of universal postings, and it was from a Christian perspective, and it was in the context of it. It was simply titled An Open Letter to Pastors on Mother's Day. And I kind of read it reluctantly the first time, and um, and, and kind of agreed and disagreed and read it again. And I agreed more than I did the second time. However, I do leave a little bit of space for disagreement to one component. But So please allow me to read this to you because I am sharing similar sentiments in, certain application, in a certain application. It says, Dear Pastor, tone can be, a tri- can be tricky in writing. Picture me popping my head in your office door, smiling and asking if we could talk for five minutes. I'm sipping on my Diet Coke as I sit down. You know that I'm not one to shy away from speaking my mind because part of the reason you love me mostly. And so I'm guessing that internally you brace yourself wondering what might be next. Now, I have about, I don't know, about 100 people in this church that are just like that. So <laughs> a few years ago, I sat across from a woman who told me that she doesn't go, uh, go to church on Mother's Day because it's too hurtful. I'm not a mother, but I had never seen the day as hurtful. She had been married, had numerous miscarriages, divorced, and was beyond childbearing years. It was like salt and mostly healed wounds to go to church on that day. And this made me sad, but I understood. So fast forward several years to Mother's Day. A pastor asked all mothers to stand. On my immediate right, my mother stood, and on my immediate left, a dear friend stood. I, a woman in her late 30s, sat. I don't know how others saw me, but I felt dehumanized, gutted as a woman. In bold captions, it says, real women stood, empty shells, sat. I do not normally feel this way. I do not like feeling this way. I want no woman to ever feel this way in church again. Last year, a friend from the States happened to visit on Mother's Day. This particular lady was involved in missions work overseas. So last year, a friend from the States happened to visit on Mother's Day, and again the pastor, a different one, asked all mothers to stand. As a mother, she stood, and I whispered to her, I can't take it, I'm standing. She knows I'm not a mother, yet she understands my standing slash lie. And so here's the thing. Again, I'm going to agree and disagree, okay? Here's the thing. I believe we can honor mothers without alienating others, and I do agree with that statement. And that's certainly my objective here today. And, and I've learned, of course, that's been personally my objective for many years as I have transitioned ministering on Sundays, not necessarily to just motherhood, but oftentimes to simply womanhood, that it's a womb that causes you to be distinct. Whether or not the womb is ever filled is irregardless to God. It's the fact he gave you the womb, the capacity that's what caused you to be distinct and to a degree special in the eyes of God. And we are very thankful for you today. I want women to feel welcome, appreciated, seen, and needed here in our little neck of the body of Christ. He, she encourages us to do away with the standing. You mean well, but it's just awkward. Does the woman who had a miscarriage stand? Does the mom whose children ran away stand? Does the single woman who is pregnant stand? Those are great questions, great points. Number two, acknowledge the wide continuum of mothering. So she lists some of these. And I do want to address it because I want to, I want to be across the board towards womanhood here. To those who gave birth this year to their very first child, we celebrate you with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. 
to those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. And I could add, and we pray for you. <laughs> to those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointments, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, to which we've got a growing number in our church family, mentor moms. You don't have to have, have had a child in your womb for you to be a mother too. And spiritual moms, we need you. Perhaps that's our greatest call right there is for not only certainly paternal motherhood, but mentor moms, foster moms, and spiritual moms. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, today we acknowledge your experience. To those who live through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you long for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on those complex paths. To those who envision lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. I love this one, though. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. <laughs> There's a little bit of both there. To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selfishness or your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. So this Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst, and that is true. Matter of fact, all the guys should say amen and give all the ladies a very special God bless you today because we do remember you today. So number three, before she closes, she commends mothering for the way that it reflects the image of God by bringing forth new life, nurturing those on her path, and living with the tension of providing both freedom and a safety net. I know it might be an unusual one to be speaking about Mother's Day, but I know that that's why so many talk to me about mothering. She writes, I've got the parts, just not the goods. So she herself was, did not have children as of yet. Thanks for listening and for continuing to mother us and in a shepherding way. Even though I'm a bit nervous to come on Sunday, I will be here. But if you make a stand, I might just walk out warmly and in your corner. So this is where I'm going to say I agree with everything, but I reserve a little bit of component to disagree. Even though I want to make sure I don't want to alienate anyone. And I have transitioned theologically to that place where I've attempted to minister to to womanhood as a whole and value the distinction and being a man and a woman, the distinction that God created. No matter what the culture does to try to blur the image, God still creates a distinction. 
and we want to make sure that we do our part in honoring, and I believe honor is the right word. But at the same time, even though as we honor all of just simply being a woman, there's still nothing, it should be not diminish you as a woman for us to say one good or kind or gracious word to all the ladies that are mothers here because motherhood is a very special thing. And so I think it can be both. I think we can be very careful and gracious to not alienate in any capacity. But at the same time, we are bound to a biblical exhortation to honor our father and our mother. Right? And we want to do that today. So we want to walk this together. So here in the book of Proverbs, I have a text here that I want to show you. Now, this is only going to lead us into the heart of where we're going today. But I feel like it's appropriate because it's a familiar passage of Scripture. We're not going to read it in great detail. Matter of fact, I'll try to just scan it or skim it. And, and in doing so, it's because I'm leading you to a particular place from which I'm extracting what was uh, kind of the foundation from which upon I'm building. And here in Proverbs 31, and many of you are familiar with the Proverbs 31 you know, teaching that this is the teaching on a virtuous woman. Now, you may note here that Proverbs uh, 31, it, many times in Bible, is division or it has a division between the ninth and the tenth verse because it seems to be that a portion of the first nine verses is instructional towards the king. Here, the king is King Lemuel, to which I'll clarify that for you in a few moments. The first nine verses seem to be instructions that he received about his life, both prophetically and uh, just kind of a practical from his mother. And then the 10th through the 31st verse, for which we often allude to as the passage that gives us the virtuous woman of Scripture, seems to be his record of observation of what he believes a virtuous woman should be, both in conduct, character, and, and how she behaves herself and ministers to her family and, to her, and also her community. So just remember that there is a division here in verses 1 through 9 as he addresses, again, the exhortation from his mother. And I'm going to omit that uh, verses 1 through 9 for right now. I might come back to it in a short period of time. But I want to just go ahead and pick up. So after having received this counsel from his mother towards how he should handle himself as a king, he now begins to give instruction to, again, to what? You can find, so I'm going to glean this very quickly. I'm not going to teach every little component. With wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. So the context certainly here as he gives description to this virtuous She's like, in comparison, a merchant ship. She bringeth her food from afar. She rises also while it is yet night, and she giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. Against all the time in order to accomplish the things that you feel like life is demanding of you. But I'm telling you, with the grace of God, you can do all things through Christ. You can. 
And so we marvel at your gifts and abilities. And so she considers a field. She buys it. So she's uh, in context of business with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength. She strengtheneth her arms. I think Ashley probably alluded a little bit to that with the bow yesterday. She perceives that her merchandise is good. She knows that she's walking in the blessing of God. She knows that what she's got and who she is is good. It's good for her family. She knows she's a blessing to her family. That's not arrogance. Come on, that's acknowledging that God's done a good work in your life. Acknowledging that you can leave a lasting imprint upon someone else in your family. She knows that she's got the goods, so to speak. Um, what verse was I at just then? We go up there, the 18th verse. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and uh, her hands hold the distaff. She stretches out her hands to the poor, so she's very benevolent. Yea, she stretches forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet, or the best of the uh, clothings. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. While he, when he sitteth among the elders of the land, she maketh fine linen, she sells it, she delivers girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. I just love this. I think it's a great application. She looketh well to the ways of her household, and she does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. And that's one of the things that we're doing collectively as a church family, certainly to women in general, certainly to mothers and wives also as well. And so her children rise up, they're calling her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. The 29th verse, many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. So I want to pause here for a moment of time because the writer King Lemuel seems to be writing from his perspective of someone that he has observed that, dis that, that displays the kind of attributes that he is recognizing as virtuous, that what he believes by perhaps divine perception that this is what a godly woman would look like. But let me just draw a little bit of line of distinction. If all you do is take the 10th verse through the 29th verse, you can have perhaps a virtuous woman, an industrious woman. You can have a woman that is perceived and loved by her family and that has displayed benevolence and compassion and is tireless in her effort. But that does not mean that she's necessarily a woman of faith. But to be a virtuous woman really in accordance to the context that the writer Lemuel is writing from, then you have to have the 30th verse because it's not enough just to be benevolent. It's not enough to be industrious. It's not enough to know how to knit and to sew and know how to cook and to clean or how to buy a, a vineyard or how to work in the business or how to get your degree or how to uh, do all of those things. Be vested, be a businesswoman. It's not enough. If you have all those things, Things, and you don't have the 30th verse, then you're not being measured in the right capacity because the 30th verse is where the revelation contains the true virtuous woman because here Lemuel says, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. Now I'm telling you that I could really share about that in our culture today when so much pressure is put upon our ladies to look a certain way, to dress a certain way. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? To spend selling hundreds of billions of dollars are spent annually upon you know cosmetics and trying to look this way and the latest fashion trend and all of that and I'm not preaching against those things but you can't measure yourself by those things 
Come on, your spiritual virtue will not be measured based upon whether or not that you've got the, 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 the latest look or the latest, you know, outfit or whether you've got, you know, whether you're fighting age better than the rest of us. That's not going to be the issue. I love the 30th verse where Lemuel says this, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, meaning it's passing, it's aging. You can fight against it all you want to, but you'll eventually, we're all going to age a little bit. But here's what gives you the distinct mark of whether or not you are a true virtuous woman right here a woman that feareth the lord come on somebody i feel that right there in my heart that's been in my heart all week that's the distinction of a true virtuous woman this is a woman that fears god this is a woman that acknowledges that she's created in the image of god she's distinct god has called her to be all the other things that were mentioned they follow they follow those are works that follow after her faith her faith is set in god she is a faithful woman based upon her faith in the Lord. She that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. I just love that phrase right there. So he said of that kind of woman, you give her of the fruit of her hands and you let her own works praise her in the gate. You, she, she's going to live a life of testimony that others don't even have to testify about her. Just who she is is going to be a lasting legacy because I'm telling you, faith is the greatest heirloom, moms, that you can pass to your children and your children's children. Faith in God. So I contemplate for just a moment, who are the women that fear the Lord? And who was the woman that feareth the Lord according to this particular passage of Scripture? So for just a moment to answer that quick question, who is a woman that fears the Lord? What does that mean? This is my personal interpretation. Here is a woman that fears the Lord. Very carefully, listen. It is a woman that bends her will to the will of God. It's a woman that stays pliable and conformable to the image of Jesus. That she may fight against her own personality traits. She may fight against her past. She may fight against her experiences, all of that. But she allows herself to be molded and shaped into the image of God's dear son. That she's being changed from the inside out. That the Spirit of God is on the inside of her, shaping and working in her heart and in her life. It's a woman who knows the word. Ladies, you're doing a terrible job of saying amen here on Mother's Day. I'm going to love you enough to tell you the truth. A woman who fears the Lord is a woman who knows the Word of God, who studies the Word of God, who reads it and hides it in her heart. And then, listen to this, because this will be important for at the end, is a woman who will remind God of His faithful promises. I believe in putting God in remembrance of what God has said. Not that He has forgotten but to stimulate faith in my heart towards God, I remind the Lord of what he says. And I believe that that is an identification of a woman that fears the Lord. I encourage every lady here today. That is that you can be an industrious woman and not be a woman that fears the Lord. So I encourage each one to study the scriptures, especially the scriptures that speak directly to women. And then to pray and say, God, work that in my heart. Work it out, God. Teach me. 
Teach me to have that meek and that quiet spirit. Teach me how to say and to do the right thing. Teach me to how to handle myself correctly. Teach myself. What if you're living, lady, with a, a husband who doesn't know the Lord? If your middle name is nag, 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 you are not going to lead that man to Jesus. It's a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price so that without conversation, by the hope, without you saying a word, just by you living your life faithful before God, you are a living epistle written to that man and he's reading it daily so I encourage you know the scripture read the scripture that will make you into that woman that fears the Lord he said here that many uh, virtuous women there are many daughters that have done virtuously but thou this woman excels beyond them all when I think of virtuous women I think of many that are in the scripture I have spent 20 years now in full-time pastoral ministry. Thus, this is my 20th year to preach a Mother's Day message. So I have gone consistently to the Scriptures to expound my understanding because I like to make biblical association. I like to just connect to somebody in Scripture, whether it be a situation, an incident in the life of ancient Israel or a particular person. I like to just connect. The Bible talks about holy women of old. Holy women, First Peter 3 speaks about holy women of old, connecting the generation of believers in his day, the believers that he was writing to, the apostle Peter, with daughters of Sarah. He said, whose daughters you are, if you do well. I like to make that association. I believe that I'm preaching to some holy women today. I believe I'm preaching to some women that know the scriptures. They're growing in grace and godliness, and you're being conformed to the will, to the will of God. So I, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Can you call forth a few in your minds? Does your mind, when you think about holy women of God, does it take you to Hannah? Does it take you to Elizabeth? Does it take you to Miriam? Does it take you to Deborah? Does it take you to Mary? Does it take you to Martha? Those numerous women that we have the record of their life and their testimony in scripture. Why is that written? In the word of God so that you can glean from their lives and see divine attributes in their faith and say, God, work that in my heart as well. Work that in my heart as well. But today, we're going to look at a woman that feared the Lord that is often misrepresented within the church. And I want to share with you some clarification. So please allow me to do so because I'm very excited to share with you. I think it might surprise you possibly concerning the woman that I've chosen for us to look at to emulate a measure of who she was, what she did for our ladies that are under the sound of my voice today. And it will take a little bit of clarification for us to this passage of Scripture to understand this. Did you notice? We didn't read it, but let's back up to Proverbs 31 verse 1 for just a moment if we can. If you're able to post that with me or if your Bible is there open in your lap. It says in Proverbs 31, the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Now, Many of us, when we contemplate the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, 31 chapters, we often associate these with Solomon, the son of David. And here we come to this passage concerning a virtuous woman. This passage, verses 1 through 9, seem to be the response to this king called Lemuel. Now, let me say this. Now, scholars are divided to actually who King Lemuel was. There are the majority of scholars, though, that believe that that was actually nothing more than Solomon himself under another name. Many authors write under different names, just as you see many artists paint portraits and then sign a different name than 
than their own, that this is actually King Solomon himself. So if that's the case, then let's consider this for just a moment. The words that King Samuel or, or Solomon said, the words that King Solomon concerning what? The prophecy that who his mother taught him. So let's put this together for just a moment. So Solomon here, if this is the case, is giving uh, honor to his mother who has taught him divine principles, prophetic principles of faith and of the scripture. So for a moment you say, well, okay, well, who is the mother of Solomon? None other than often the mis, uh, you know, mis, uh, what's the right, misrepresented lovely Bathsheba. We're going to talk about Bathsheba for just a moment. Solomon, throughout the book of Proverbs, on more than one occasion, he referenced his mother personally, two times directly. This passage, 31 and verse 1, also in the fourth chapter and the third verse. Two times he did so indirectly in the book of Proverbs when he said, Forsake not the law of thy mother. So it seems to us that not only was David and the divine attributes of faith that David possessed passed into the knowledge of of the understanding of God into Solomon by David himself but it seems that Bathsheba that Bathsheba herself also was a woman of faith and when we think of Bathsheba I know what you think about and we're going to talk about that for just a few moments of time but I want you to catch the attention to the words there the prophecy that's very important we're going to come back to it in a moment now other translations may say things like divine instruction prophecy is divine instruction but at the same time I believe in the prophetical words that God can give us especially at times concerning our children i know i'm preaching to some ladies here today that that god gave you a prophetical unction or through someone else god spoke something about your children maybe before they were born maybe when they were in their womb in your womb time we won't take the time to read the second verse of the 31st chapter through the ninth verse but this this is actual instruction that Bathsheba gave to Solomon for how she he should handle himself on the throne what type of man he should be what type of king that he should be how should that he should not pervert judgment how should he handle himself not to give himself to wine not to give himself to strong drink not to give himself to frivolous relationships or to be led astray by marrying a multitude of women we know he failed in that endeavor but at the same time he was not without the godly counsel that his mother gave him and warned him teaching him how to handle himself in this way now this is kind of unique for us to think about because when we think of Bathsheba we think almost exclusively of her adulterous relationship with David many times we even perceive her to have been akin to a mistress but a closer examination of her life and this detailed in this detailed account in scripture reveals to us that nothing could be further from the truth as you look closer to the text concerning that night of adultery with David with with David you will realize later that the only person and you say pastor I know that it takes two to tangle yes but the only person that was reproved by the uh, authoritative voice of God was David never is Bathsheba reproved for her night of adultery I'll clarify the reason why in just a few moments so let's go for a moment and just kind of put that together we won't turn to the book of 2nd Samuel the 11th chapter but that's where the story record is recorded 
that David, at a time when kings had gone out to battle, y'all are familiar, I alluded to it briefly last week, when kings had gone out to battle for whatever reason, for whatever reason, David chose to stay back at the, at the palace. And as the evening sun began to set, he went up on the rooftop of his house. And from there, he spied a lovely woman bathing. Now, many times we portray this as a very sensual bath something that you would see in some erotic magazine or video or something of that nature. But that too could be far from the truth because let me tell you what most likely was taking place was that Bathsheba was actually going through the ritual bathings because according to the Mosaic law, once a woman had been on her menstrual cycle, when her menstrual cycle started, she was ceremoniously unclean until the time of her menstrual cycle cycles completion and then she had to wait seven days past the end of the last of the blood flow in her menstrual cycle before she could then go and go through the mitzvah where she would then be washed and then be declared ceremonially clean so most likely when David saw her it wasn't some erotic picture that we see but it was that she was walking according to are y'all hearing what I'm saying? She was, going, she was fulfilling the word of God for her life that she was going through. Now, her husband is in the field. Now, oddly enough, this is what's so unique about this, and this is one of the things that I was sharing with Jojo. If you have ever studied out a woman's body anatomy and everything in this capacity, you have six children. Those are things that you and Sherry just do. And so you just learn that a woman is more fertile about seven days after the end of her menstrual cycle. So oddly enough, the day that David is on the rooftop looking down, seeing her bathe herself, and he espies and says, who is this? Now, we won't go into all this, but oddly enough, when he finds out who it is, guess who Bathsheba is? Remember last week's sermon, Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Which is it? Ahithophel. Ahithophel was her grandfather. And then Uriah, her husband, and her father were both numbered in David's 30 mighty men of valor that are recorded in Scripture. And David is aware of who this is. Once they come and say, this is the daughter of Eliam, and this is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, and yet he still pursues her. So for a moment, and so that night, just back to that body anatomy, oddly enough, we know as a result of that sexual encounter, what happened? She got pregnant. She got pregnant because the timing was just right for that one night stand to produce a child. So what we have to do, if you look closer and you weigh everything in the balance, we can conclude that David is the one that lusted for her. That David was the one that enticed her. He sent for her. And while she was in, and she went willingly because she didn't know. When the king called, you just go. Right? You just go. And so when she was there, it's very possible, though, that either through wine or through strong drink that he got her drunk or he used his kingly authority. They call it power rape. Not physical to the degree that like when we read about Amnon who raped Tamar later in Scripture who overpowered her physically. It's perhaps he didn't overpower her physically, but he overpowered her in authority. 
and she felt like she had to do so lest her family could be at risk. And ultimately, her family was at risk, though she did not know it at that particular time. And so after the adultery, I want you to think about this. She finds out later that she's pregnant. You know the story. If you don't read it on your own, I'm not going to go into all the depths of that story, but I want you to see how her life changed as a result of this. But let me also counterbalance that with you, that when Nathan the prophet came in and brought the reproof of God, he didn't point the finger at Bathsheba. He didn't bring Bathsheba and line her up beside David and say, the fault lies with both of you. No, he put his finger right in the chest of David and he said, David, you're at fault. So that says to us is that God still deemed her innocent to a degree innocent to a degree. We want you to see how she suffered. She suffered twofold. First of all, because once there's the knowledge of the child, her husband, I believe, without her knowledge, is slain by David. And y'all remember how he had him put at the hot point of the battle and all the men of Israel back away, left him exposed, and he died there. Y'all remember that? So very quickly, then let's go a little bit further. I don't believe she had knowledge of that. I don't believe she conspired against the death of her own husband because when word came back to her, she mourned. And I don't believe it was a hypocritical mourning. I believe it was a sincere mourning. She loved Uriah. He was a good and a godly man. And so so she's gone through the loss of her husband. And then uh, certainly later, then she loses the child. But she mourns his death. And after his death, though, she is abruptly taken from her household into the king's house. Now, on the surface, you think, well, that's not that bad a deal. You think on the service, well, she's gone from, you know, being just one in the army, the wife of one in the army, to being in the, in the bed with the king. No, that's not the way it worked. She would just be a part of a harem. Up until that time, she was married to one man. And, and, and that one man was married to one woman. Polygamy was practiced in ancient Israel, but usually only by the wealthy and the influential. So most likely, Urias and Bathsheba were just simply, you know, a, a couple. So she's used to going to bed at night and snuggling up with this man of valor, Urias. But now she's in the harem. She's isolated in a moment where she might get called, she might not get called. She might be with the king one night, and she might not be with the king. I mean, you know, that's a contrast of the peace and the comfort that she had of having this, the stability of, of being in a home to now being a part of a harem. Secondly, the child that was conceived in adultery died and she mourned the loss of that child as well. And I'm sure that there was some self-condemnation applied. Whether or not it was right, it doesn't matter. Many times it's not right, the self-guilt and self-condemnation that we put on ourselves. But our carnal mind still beats us up. So I'm sure that she did have self-inflicted grief and condemnation. And that child died and she mourned it. But the Bible does say that later she was comforted over the loss of the child. And David called her. And David of King James English, David went in to her and God gave them a child. And this child was named Solomon. Did you know Solomon means in the Hebrew that the Lord loves him? What a beautiful picture of God's redemptive grace. The loss of the child that was conceived in adultery, but the second child God said, I love. How many know God is able to redeem? Come on, somebody. God is able to redeem. God's a gracious God, and God's able to do great and wonderful things in our life. 
But it was this prophecy. That's what I want to draw your attention to for just a moment. I won't preach much longer, but i got to show you a couple of things today. This prophecy, what is that? Could this prophecy that I'm about to share with you, is that what she's referencing? Or excuse me, the writer Lemuel or Solomon is referencing the prophecy that his mother taught him? I was studying about this, and I saw something for the very first time. Time will not allow me to go there, but I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to go there, but I'm not going to. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to have to read a little portion of it with you. But I want to take you back in time to a little time during David's life prior to him having the adulterous moment with Bathsheba. It's in 2 Samuel chapter number 7. We're not going to read it, but let me tell you what happened in that moment. David is dwelling in his house. The ark of God is in a tent. David is thinking in his heart. He said, you know what? I live in a house of cedar. The ark of God's in a tent. I'm going to build God a house. Seemed like a right thing to do. He's praying about it. I'm going to build God a house. And so God, through the prophet Nathan, comes to him, speaks a word. Said, David, it's a good thing that you're going to build me a house. But you've been a a man of blood. He said, so you're not going to build me a house. But I'll tell you who's going to build me a house. The man that's going to come of your loins, that's who's going to build me a house. That's the one. I'm going to love him. He's going to build me a house. That happened before David went into that adulterous night with Bathsheba. And so he records this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But in 1 Chronicles 22, only two verses. Let me read them for you. David is now rehearsing this years later to Solomon as he's charging Solomon. David's now an aged king. He will soon hand over the kingdom to his son Solomon and he's reminding Solomon of the promise. So listen what he says. He's reminding him of that night. He said, my son, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord. But God came to me and said, you can't because you've been a man of blood. But the ninth verse, listen to this. Behold, a son shall be born to thee who shall be a man of rest and I will give him rest from all of his enemies round about for his name shall be Solomon that's powerful I don't know if you caught that you may have been thinking pastor I'm just hurrying up and ready to go I want to go to good times restaurant and get a catfish po' boy and you're holding me up on Sunday no you missed the, the real meat of the word right you missed the real bread that will sustain your life right there what it said was right here before he ever went into Bathsheba before the moment of adultery ever happened before God before David ever stepped stepped out and took another man's wife God already knew where he was going to go. God already knew the effects of that, that night of sin and the death of that child, but God already knew because he's the God of divine redemption, he was going to redeem not only David, but he was going to redeem Bathsheba, and he was going to give them a child, and this child God was going to love. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? God was going to give him a child that God said, I'm going to love, and I'm going to put him on the throne that you're sitting on, and he's, he's going to be a man of peace, and he's going to build me a house. And he's going to be wise. And matter of fact, many of the kings after him are going to always try to, uh, to, to reach the level of wisdom that I'm going to give him. He's going to be such a godly man. Man, that's a powerful word right there for you to get down in your spirit. So here's my kind of culmination. I'm going to show you one last thing before I close. One last thing in just a moment of how Bathsheba is aware of that prophecy. Here's my belief. I believe that Bathsheba believes the prophetical word. 
So I believe that as Solomon is growing, David's got more boys. He's got Solomon is not in the right order to be the king. But see, Bathsheba got a word from God. She's heard a word from God. My son's going to be the king. She's trusting in the word. She's trusting in the prophecy. Matter of fact, verses 1 through 9 that he's recording there in, in, in Proverbs 31 concerning the instruction to the king, he may have received that when he was but a toddler or when he was a teenager or when he was just a young man and his mom was still teaching him, son, one day you're going to be the king. One day you're going to have to handle yourself the right way. I know right now you're just one of the king's sons, but one day... And the reason why I'm saying that is because I believe under the sound of my voice there are some ladies here today that you've got some children that God's given you. And as I said moments ago, either before they were born or when they were pregnant in your womb or when they were just little toddlers or when they were young kids or when they were teenagers or even as young adults. And they may be in the far country. You may say, well, I don't see how they're... But in the spirit, God gave you a word. God gave you a promise. God told you just something about your child it was a prophecy it came from the lord you got to hide that in your heart you got to hide that in your heart no matter what's going on in the life of your children and you got to say god you have promised that my children are one day going to serve you. God, one day, you told my son may not be a preacher, but you say, but God told me when he was three years old, he'd be a preacher. I'm going to trust that God's going to honor his word. You may say, well, right now my kids are on drugs, but God told me one day they're going to be deacons in the house of God. God told me one day they're going to be leading ministries in the church of Jesus Christ. Mom, I got a good word for you today. Don't give up. Don't stop. Believe the word. Believe the promise. And keep telling your children what they will be in Christ. I love that. Bathsheba was telling him what he's going to be, not who he is. He may say, Mom, I'm just a drug addict. You can say, No, you are a child of the Most High God. You are free by the virtue of the power of the authority of Jesus' name. You are not what everybody else says around you. It is what God has said that really matters. That's the kind of woman that I want to preach to today. I am preaching to some Bathshebas here today, some Bathshebas that are believing the word of Almighty God over all the reports of those that are around them. My goodness, that's a good word today. So let me close by taking you to 1 Kings to show you this what principle in action. And we're going to close today by just gleaning very, very quickly from the life of Bathsheba as it relates to what I just shared with you. In 1 Kings verses 1 through 9, we're not going to read, but let me tell you what has taken place. David is aged got many sons. He's lost three already. Amnon was the firstborn. There's another one, by, I think, by the name of Chiliab. And the third was Absalom. I was wrong last week when I said Absalom was the firstborn. He was the firstborn by his mother, but he was not the firstborn to David. But his fourth son, Adonijah, is the son of Agath. He has exalted himself. David is the king. He's limited in his actions and, and involvement in the kingdom. So Adonijah sees a moment in which he can usurp the throne. He calls Joab to remember Joab. He calls Abathar the priest. They try to help him. They go to a certain city. He invites other of the king's sons. All the king's sons are invited except for Solomon. And he anoints, uh, the scripture says that Abathar the priest anoints Adonijah and says, you're now the king. So there's noises heard. And so then the story is picked up. 
the 10th verse of 1 Kings. And I want to read this before we close today, ladies. So please bear with me and allow me to share this with you because I think it will be a powerful truth. A powerful truth that you will not soon forget. So please open your understanding and just read this with me and let's just let it unfold. I won't exhort it in great detail because it just speaks for itself. Nathan the prophet and Benaniah and the mighty men and Solomon his brother, he called not. So Nathan, 11th verse, comes. Nathan, the same prophet that rebuked David for his night of adultery, speaks to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And he said, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, doth reign? And David, our Lord, knoweth it not. So he's saying simply, Have you not heard the news? Bathsheba's like, No, I haven't heard. I don't know anything what's going on. And so he gives counsel. Now, therefore, come, let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel that thou mayest save thine own life and the life of your son Solomon. Here's what he said. Nathan is giving their counsel. Go and get thee in unto King David and say unto him. So this exhortation is from the prophet. Let me say, I'm not trying to give, be a prophet today, but I am trying to be prophetical. And I'm trying to give you words of good judgment and counsel today, ladies, to tell you, don't give up on your children. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop speaking the word of God. I give you good counsel today. She, here he says, go in to the king and remind the king. Look what, he, she said, look what he said. Did not thou, my lord, the king, swear to your handmaid, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, thy son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. Why then doth Adonijah reign? Behold, while thou yet talkest there with the king, I'm going to come in and I'm going to give agreement. I'm going to come in after you and confirm your words. 14th verse. So look what Bathsheba does. So when you think about Bathsheba, often you only think about her going into the chamber where she had a night of adultery with the king and produced a child that would die in the judgment of God. But now here's another moment in the chamber with the king and she's got a petition that's heavy on her heart. I want you to see this, ladies, because I want you to know of the grace and the goodness and the mercy and the redemptive power of our God because you have just as much right to be in the presence of the king today. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? You have just as much right as somebody that was in the church all their life because if you are in Christ, you have the right to go into the throne room and petition God for his mercy and for his, and for his grace. Hallelujah. And so she goes in and she says, the king's old, this young lady's taking care of him, and Bathsheba bows. That's where that worship comes in. That's where that reference comes in. And she's uh, vows in obedience to the king. And the king said, what wouldest thou? I tell you, I believe that's the way our king says to us today. I believe when we come in in humility, God is ready to hear and answer. Don't be afraid to ask things of God. God is able. Man, I'm preaching so much better than y'all shouting today. I'm just telling you. One day you're going to look back and when Pastor Brown's long and gone, you say, man, we missed an opportunity. We should have gave him a lot more amens along the way because that was good doctrine that's flowing here today. This is good stuff, church family. I'm telling you today, this is good stuff because you've got to have a basis for your faith when you start to petition God. You've got to have something that stimulates your faith because just being there is not sufficient. It's the prayer of faith that God hears. You've got to ask God based upon faith. You can beg and plead and whine and complain and toss out your plight and your situation to God all day long, and it ain't going to move him. But when you open your mouth up and you begin to square your shoulder back and you begin to remind God of what he said and the promise that he made and the authority of his word, that's when God leans his ear over. That's when God begins to hear and respond. And so she's bowing before the king, and she said, My Lord, you swore by the Lord. 
thy God unto thine handmaid. And you said, Assuredly, Solomon, thy son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. And now Adonijah reigns, and my Lord the king doesn't know it. He's slain oxen and cattle, sheep in abundance. He called the uh, Abathar and Joab and all the sons, but Solomon he has not called. And thou, my Lord, O king, the eyes of Israel are upon thee, that thou shouldest tell them who should sit on the throne of my Lord the king after him. Otherwise it shall come to pass when my Lord the king shall sleep with his fathers that I and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders. And while she's in the midst of pouring out her petition to the king, in comes Nathan. And so now Nathan gives credence to her particular petition. So Nathan then adds his agreement to her, her request before the king but what I want you to see ladies before I close before I bring you down to the front before I pray with you give you a hug give you a small gift this day that she was basing her petition not just upon her plight the possibility of her death if Adonijah reigned not none of that she was basing her petition upon a prophetical word that David had spoken because he had received it from Nathan the prophet that her son Solomon would sit on the throne you as a woman of faith you as a woman of God you as a woman that fears the Lord you got to learn that when you go into God's presence and you begin to pour out your petition unto God you base your petition upon a divine revelation of scripture a promise that God made remind God of his word and I came to tell you today our God is a God that does not forget and when you remind him of his word it's not for him it's for you to be reminded of his word and as you speak that word of faith faith is built in your heart and God will respond to that word of faith God will respond to that word of faith and only for the sake of time will I omit reading the rest of this particular passage of scripture but the story continues all the way down I'll pick it up only very quickly even at the 28th verse David after speaking with Nathan says call me Bathsheba Bathsheba comes to his presence stands before the king and the king says as the Lord liveth that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress even as I swear unto thee by the Lord God of Israel, assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead. Even so, even so, is God going to do a work in your family? Come on, somebody, even so. God said, will I certainly do it this day? Even so, will God do it this day? Even so. So for a moment of time, let's put it all together very quickly. Proverbs 31, the writer King Solomon is reflecting upon sound instruction that he received. That sound instruction then is complemented by an exhortation of what he perceives a virtuous woman to be. Is it possible that the pattern of a virtuous woman that he had in his mind when he was given that instruction was none other than his own mother herself, the lovely Bathsheba, who the church has labeled as a mistress, the church has labeled as an adulteress. But it's my belief today that she's a woman of faith, of Proverbs 31 and 30. Favor was deceitful 
and beauty was vain, but a woman that feared the Lord, the same would be praised. And she got access to the king's presence. She petitioned the king on behalf of her son, and God honored the word of the king. And I believe that's a picture of what happens to you, mom. That's what happens to you, ma'am. When you go into God's presence and you say, God, you promised. You promised that you would do this for my children. You promised that you would do this in my life. And when you do that, you number yourself. And if we could write about your testimony, we would include you in Proverbs 31. And we would say, you're a virtuous woman and you learned the principle. Favor was deceitful and beauty is vain, but you learned to fear the Lord and you're going to be praised. Hallelujah. Let me ask you to stand up together with me today. Daryl's going to join me on the platform. We're going to come forward. I want to ask the ladies to come forward. I've got something for each one of you and we're going to do something together today. We're going to pray with you. We're going to join our faith. It's going to be a corporate...